the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Harbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday show. Thank you for tuning in. I, I do this often, but I was listening to the voice of the announcer. Uh, is a man I know. His name is John, a wonderful guy and loves the Lord. But every time I hear that voice, I think it's really a crime that you and the listening audience have to listen to his voice, followed by my Winnie the Pooh voice. In heaven, I'll probably get his voice. I think that's how God will fix things. Hey, thank you for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your lives, whatever is on your heart. Just dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your question in. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, on Tuesdays, we don't have anything to talk about except questions. So let me get to the questions, and uh, we'll await your phone calls. The first one is an anonymous one. Uh, I listened to your message on Sunday. I guess he means this past Sunday. And you said you were going to give your testimony. Why would you do that instead of teaching the Bible? Great question. Uh, I bet I've given my testimony three times here at Calvary Chapel. Now, bits and pieces of my testimony get in there. I, I You know, people, I want them to know who I am and where I came from. But, but in terms of giving my testimony, I've done it, I think, three times over the years. And every single time, it's when I was teaching in the book of Acts. Because testimony is such an important part of the book of Acts. Paul gives his testimony on three separate occasions. And um, I don't know the first time the Lord just sort of led me to to share my testimony. Um, The next time I taught, now these are maybe a couple of years apart or three or four years apart. Uh, The next time um, the Lord spoke to my heart again and said, I want you to share your testimony. Um, and, and the same thing happened the third time. Uh, in this, the fourth time, um, I really didn't want to do this. I didn't think it was necessary. Uh, however, um, the Lord has made it really, really clear as I've been doing Paul's testimony uh, that he wants me to give my testimony again. So um, to answer your question, why would I do that instead of teaching the Bible? Um, I'm going to do it because the Lord is leading me to do it. One of the good things about giving my testimony is that almost uh, always... When I give my testimony, and I've been asked to do this in other churches, um, people get saved. In some cases, a lot of people get saved. So um, that's what I'm going to do. I don't know exactly when I'm going to do it. It'll probably be somewhere we get around chapter 26 in the book of Acts. Uh, We're in chapter 23 right now. Uh, And so I'm going to do it because that's what he said to do. Now, if you've been listening to my messages, the only thing we do here is teach the Bible. 
I mean, we take a break in our verse-by-verse teaching. Christmas, we do. We take a break. Easter, um, and and uh, occasionally we'll take a break when Paul and I come back from vacation if I feel like the Lord's put a message on my heart that he wants the church to hear. Oh, Palm Sunday is another one that we, we take a break from our verse by verse. But then it's just straight through the Bible. That's what we do. Uh, so um, that's why I'm going to do it. I do it because I feel like the Lord is leading me to do it. So I hope that answers your question. And if it doesn't satisfy you, um, I still got to do what God tells me to do. Here's a question from Billy. He says, I used to love listening to Ravi Zacharias, but since he's been exposed, is it still okay to listen to his materials? Billy, that's a hard question. That's that's kind of a uh, an individual question. Um, and you're going to have to take this matter up to prayer. Uh, I, I also was a huge fan of Ravi. Um, I think his material is excellent. Um, um, even though his life was not the same publicly or same privately as it was publicly. Um, um, There's just a lot of good stuff, a lot of really good stuff. Um, And, and I would, if it was me, because I'm able to discern, um, I would, I would say, yeah, it's okay to use his materials. But um, the, the tragedy of course, is that this wonderfully gifted man, um, disqualified himself. And of course, now he's uh, at home with the Lord. I I believe he's a Christian. I just believe that he lost his way. Um, But the tragedy is that that material is not available for people to listen to even now. I believe Ravi was one of those guys, you know, 1 John chapter 5 talks about a sin that leads unto death. And uh, um, I think Ravi, too much is given, much is required, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, And um, I, I think my my and this is only my opinion, Billy. I think that was the case where where he was hiding so much that it was just time for the Lord to remove him, and that's exactly what happened. What a tragedy is! I'm going to be doing a message. I think it's yeah, it's tomorrow night um, from Leviticus chapter 22. I think yeah, chapter 22. Um, and it talks about the responsibilities given to the priesthood. And, and um, you know, we, we're all so privileged. We, we've been given um, such a, a wonderful gift by God to teach. Uh, I get a lot of people who will call here and say they're called to be a pastor. I tell them, don't blow it. It's the greatest job ever. And uh, it, it's, it's just be dutiful. Walk faithfully before the Lord. Um, and I've seen just too many people. Some of those people were friends of mine. Um, who who have lost their way in life now because because the gift that God has given them they abused, and it's been taken away from them. So that's what happened with Ravi and Billy. I think if you are a discerning Christian, his stuff is still good. The information is there, um, and um, um, I don't think it will cause any difficulty. My final comment on this is: uh, personally, I have a hard time listening to people who um, are not walking the walk. Um, When things are exposed or if I know things about somebody, um, I I don't want to listen to them teach if, in fact, uh, what they're teaching um, isn't something they really believed and owned in their own hearts. So I hope that's okay. Here's a question from Henry. Henry says, John MacArthur says to believe in the gifts of the Spirit is heretical. So how do I refute that? Well, I don't think you need to refute it, Henry, at all. Um, The people that are listening to John MacArthur uh, are not thinking for themselves. Uh, Now, there's differences of opinion. There's cessationism. And then there's there's, uh, uh, charismatics who believe in the gift of the Spirit. Um, But that's not heresy. That's just a difference of opinion. Um, you know, based on on a, a particular position somebody's coming from. But it certainly isn't able to be defined as heretical at all. John MacArthur, uh, and I've said this before, he's blessed my life immeasurably in the past, but I think he's getting grouchy. And I, I think he's, he's um, uh, th- this is one of those cases where he's just pointing out um, rather than looking in. Um, so when I say I don't think you need to refute it, I think... 
the position that we ought to take as charismatics, and I am a charismatic, is simply that if you say the gifts of the Spirit have ceased, show me. Where in the Bible, if I read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Romans chapter 12, talking about the gifts of the Spirit, if I read those verses and and Paul is writing to people at the time that he lives in, but it's in the continuous present tense, those gifts are still in operation. And this is a case where John MacArthur is wrong. Now, Henry, let me address one thing here that I think is important. Um, I tell our church here all the time that motive is everything. Motive is everything. And I believe that men like John MacArthur, um, J. Vernon McGee, by the way, was a cessationist. Um, there, uh, Charles Swindoll is a cessationist. Um, um, and I think what they've done is overreact to the abuse of the gifts of the Spirit that is so commonplace in many churches. Honestly, when you go into some churches and everybody's speaking in tongues at once or people are flopping on the floor or they're doing horrible things and and they're doing it, they say, drunk in the Spirit or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, uh, it's silliness. It's absolute silliness. And it's easy to have a visceral reaction to it that says, well, uh, I don't want any part of that. I can't believe that's from God. Just because people abuse gifts doesn't mean that the gifts themselves are bad. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, we're told. And and every gift God gives is a good one. And the fact that some people abuse it um, shouldn't cause anyone to reject the gifts. What it should cause is that we look for a way to find balance in the use of the gifts. And the gifts of the Spirit, uh, Henry, are wonderful. They're they're so necessary today. I said that'd be my last comment and one other. John MacArthur uh, has a gift of teaching. Now, the gift of teaching is the same thing as the gift of speaking in tongues, at least in the, in the tense in the Greek. John MacArthur exercises that wonderful gift he's been given teach the word. It's funny he doesn't say that that gift has ceased. So it's very important. So read your Bible, Henry. You draw your own conclusions. Clearly you are charismatic in your um, um, approach to to church and the gifts of the Spirit. Um, Enjoy those gifts and don't let what anybody else says or does. Just make sure you're using them um, observing the guidelines given in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, remembering that 1 Corinthians 13 is between those two chapters, and that is all about love. So if you're using the gift in love and you're using them according to the standards set by God, then go ahead and use and enjoy the gifts of the Spirit that God has given you. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. We'd love to have your calls. I always say that you're more interesting than I am. Here is a question from Manny. Um, he says, Pastor Ron, if God doesn't delight in sacrifices, why did he ask for them? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I'm not quite sure what you meant. Um, Psalm 51, uh, verses 16 and 17 says this. Um, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, Manny, if I'm reading your question right, and it's a little confusing to me, um, I think what David is saying in Psalm 51, remember, this is his famous psalm of repentance. And David is trying to get right with the Lord, or he is getting right with the Lord after his terrible sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah the Hittite, her husband. Um, I think what, what David is saying in that psalm is simply that the sacrifice means nothing if it isn't accompanied by a heart that's right with God. You know, we have a tendency to think that if I do good stuff, it's okay. I'll repeat what I said in, in an earlier question. A motive is everything. And we can do exactly the right thing. We can we can want to please God with our works. And it could be a, a wonderful thing that he's asking us to do. But there's no reward for that work if, in fact, our hearts are wrong with God. So what David says is, look, it's not a delight in sacrifice. 
Now, obviously, the sacrificial system was was in use in David's time. Um, but um, what David is saying is, look, none of that means anything if my heart is wrong. And then he tells us what God deems as a as a pure heart, um, a broken spirit and a broken, contrite heart. That's the heart that God will honor. So many, I hope that answers your question. It was a little confusing for me, but um, David is a great example. Here's a question, uh, anonymous. How can I overcome lust? Now, how many Christians, men especially, have asked that question? Um, if you're a born-again believer, anonymous, now this will not be a satisfying answer to people in the audience. But if you're a born-again believer, if you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you surrendered to him, if you've put him first in your life, okay, Lord, thy will, not my will be done, you've already overcome lust. You've already overcome lust. First Corinthians 10.13, which I seem to quote on this program every other day, it says that no temptation has seized you except that which is common to men. And God is faithful. Anonymous didn't say that you're faithful. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. What that means is you already are working from a position of victory rather than defeat. And I think so often we we start thinking, I can't, I can't deal with this. I can't deal with this. I'm, I'm being so tempted. I'm, I have to give in. Well, that's defeat. We already have overcome. And what we need to do is say, okay, Lord, you made me a promise that temptation does not have to win, and I trust you, and so I choose not to do this thing I'm being tempted to do. And then you do something else. I mean, you can't just sit there and think about it all day, but you pick up your Bible and you read the Bible. You know, if you're dealing with lust, and pornography is often accompanied, uh, accompanies lust, it, it, then instead of looking at your computer screen or your phone, uh, what you do is you simply say, Lord, I don't want to do that. You don't like it. I don't like it. I feel so terrible when I do give in. So today, I choose not to give in to temptation. And I'm going to instead focus on your word. And you can do that. All you have to do is make the choice to do it. But you have already overcome because Jesus did the work. We have victory. Let me suggest a book for you, Victorious Christian Living. It's by Alan Redpath. It's a it's a wonderful read. It's interesting. It's not all that difficult. But uh, Redpath has this marvelous gift. And Victorious Christian Living is a, um, a commentary on the book of Joshua. And um, it's a matter of faith. Do you have enough faith to believe that God in you, the Holy Spirit, is stronger than the temptation or the source of temptation in your life? And it's a matter of faith or faithlessness. And that's what you've got to understand. And, and then you have to accept personal responsibility for those things, that, that you, those times when you do give in. But here's the thing we all need to remember. We have overcome. Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have tribulation. Boy, don't we all have tribulation, all kinds of problems, all kinds of temptations. But he said, take heart. I've overcome the world. So all we need to do is battle our temptations from a position of victory rather than defeat. Thank you for the question. I hope that works. Billy, another Billy. Billy says, how would you address people who say they are believers but support the LGBTQ lifestyle choices that other people make? Billy, um, I, I, I wouldn't address them. I would just say, look, if you're a born-again Christian, now this is logic 101 here. If you're a born-again Christian, isn't it necessary that you agree with your Christ? That's all you have to say. Let the Holy Spirit deal with that. Now, here's the thing, Billy. There are a lot of people who are professing Christians, and a lot of them are in the situation that you just described, where they are affirming and accepting of lifestyles that God hates. 
All you can do is tell them the truth. They better be right because the stakes are high. The truth is, the reality is that those people are not really born-again Christians. It is impossible to say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and disagree with him. Jesus never once asked me, Billy, never once asked you what your opinion on these things were. Jesus is a dictator, a benevolent dictator, a wonderful dictator, but a a dictator nonetheless. And so he says, do this. We're in the book of Leviticus, as I pointed out several times uh, on the program, on Wednesday nights. And over and over and over, and I think it's in chapter 19 where he does it the most, but chapters 18 and 19 in particular, but but it doesn't stop through the rest of the book. He, He says, I am the Lord your God. I am holy. And the idea is there, I'm making the rules. Your responsibility is to follow the rules because you say you love me. And Jesus said when he was on this earth, he said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so, Billy, what I do when people make those kind of claims, I'll ask him that question. How can you, as a Christian then, disagree with your Christ? And they never answer, and and then it always boils always rather boils down to the same argument. Well, well, I just don't really believe that the Bible is to be taken literally. God is a God of love; He wants people to be happy. And then I can look him right in the eye and say, "You know what? I would be praying for you because you don't know anything about Jesus at all." And sometimes the Lord will open a door, where I can say to them, "Look, here's my card, or here's a way you can contact me if you ever want to be honest." about your walk with the Lord. I'll help you. Almost never has anybody taken me up on that. Almost never. So, Billy, I hope that makes sense to you. Dina says, Dina or Dinah? Dina says, can you help me by explaining Jesus' teaching on new wine skins and old wine? You know, Dina, one of the things that we've got to remember is that Jesus... Uh, his ministry and his message was entirely Jewish. Now he spoke about the new covenant. He spoke about, the, but but he was dealing with the Jewish people. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and so what he's saying to them very simply, and it was sort of culminating in the what we call the Last Supper when Jesus picked up the cup and said, "This is the cup of the new covenant," and when he's talking to the religious leaders, what he's saying to them is, "Look." You're you're trapped by old. You're trapped in an old wine skin. The law is an old wine skin. Jesus said, "I've come to fulfill the law, the law, not to abolish it, but to fulfill it." And what he's doing is he's giving them an opportunity to 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 watch him usher in a new wine skin. And there's going to be new wine. You've got to put new wine in a new wine skin. You put new wine in an old wine skin, and the fermentation would cause it to burst. And so what Jesus is doing is he's he's saying, no, I, I got a whole new wine skin for you because I'm going to bring a whole new batch of wine. And of course, the reference then would be to the Holy Spirit who would come and be poured out on the world on the day of Pentecost. So, Dina, that's what's going on. He's just trying to get Jews to understand that here's what I've done. You know, it's interesting to me because um, the Sermon on the Mount is all about this. Jesus would say, you've heard that it was said, and then he would, would, would say what the law said. He said, but I say unto you. And he goes beyond what was written, and he deals with the, the spirit of the law. So nobody could keep the letter of the law, but certainly as he raised the stakes with the spirit of the law, they were without any hope at all. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, he kind of sums that whole teaching up and saying, hey, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And, and Jesus knew nobody could. The arrogance, the egos of the religious leaders, they thought they could be. They thought that the law saved them. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia that the law was a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. In other words, what we ought to do is say, I can't do this. And Jesus could say, finally, you understand, and then we would turn to him. And so that's what he was talking about in that very Jewish context. 
Um, grace is a new wine skin, and grace is a new wine, and it's Jesus saying, have I got something better planned for you? So, Dina, that's what it means. Hope that helps. We're coming close to the end of this half hour of the program. Um, can't get Roy's question. Uh, here's an honest question. I can do the last couple of minutes. Anonymous says, why is pornography wrong? The answer, Anonymous, is because God said so. It's that simple. God is the arbitrator of right and wrong. We don't get a vote. And so pornography is wrong because it's wicked. Now, obviously, the effects of pornography are horrible. And everybody who dabbles in pornography, believer and unbeliever alike, we all know it's wrong. We know it's wrong the minute we engage in it. And yet we try to justify it and find people that will say it's no problem. It's a real problem, by the way, with our young people because they've grown up with pornography available to them all the time. And honestly, they're being damaged immensely as a result. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the program. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. I'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Tuesday show, 340-9585. The phones are quiet. You're more interesting than I am. We'd love your comments or your questions. Roy asked this question. Am I sinning? Because I cannot be content being single. I want to be in a relationship badly. Roy, there's a million people just like you. We live in a time when when relationships, if we're not in one, it's like we're broken. There's something wrong with us. A couple of things. You are in a relationship as a believer. You're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you've got to decide if he's enough. Now, people will say, but Pastor Ron, I want somebody with skin. I want somebody who can hold me or somebody that I can hold. I understand that. But in some cases, Roy, this idea of having a relationship becomes an idol in our lives. And here's the one thing I can tell you is that if if you want a relationship, physical, human relationship, And that's more important to you than your relationship with Jesus Christ. He's going to keep frustrating you. So the way that you resolve this is simply to say, Lord, I want what you want. And then you can be honest. Even though I don't want what you want, I I want to be in a relationship. But here's the thing. God is preparing you to be in a relationship. At the same time, he's preparing the person that you'll be in a relationship with um, for that relationship as well. Now, here's the way to think about it, Roy. If you were God, in, in the condition you're in, you want a relationship so badly, you would, you would if there was a, a, a woman in your life now, um, you'd put so much pressure on her to fulfill your expectations. Can God bring a woman he loves to you and expect you to be the godly leader that she needs? And the only way you can answer that question, yes, is by by being sure that Jesus is first in your life. Now, I can tell you it, it was a different context, but when Jesus told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, the same thing is true in this situation. Jesus will be enough for you. But you've got to focus on what he wants, and he wants your heart. He doesn't want to share you with somebody else. Now, the, the the desire to be married or the desire to be in a relationship is a good desire. There's nothing wrong with it. But it cannot it cannot come before Jesus Christ in terms of priority for you. And so yeah, it is a sin. It is a sin of unbelief. And the only way to respond is let Jesus be enough for you. And then with thanksgiving, with a grateful heart, you can make your request known to God. So, very important, but you've got to learn to be content where you are. Um, Do me a favor and read Genesis chapter 22. 
I think Abraham was in a similar situation. Uh, He elevated Isaac, the gift from God, um, to a place of importance in his life that that superseded that of his relationship with God. And so read Genesis 22 a couple, three times, and maybe the Holy Spirit will speak to your heart. But you can be content. You just haven't chosen to yet. So I hope that makes sense. Let's go to Jim on line one from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Ron, for your program, and thanks for answering my call. Um, maybe some related, talking about heart. I was reading Psalm 131. It's uh, the, the subtitle is it, The Song of Ascent of David. And I just had some questions. I don't. It's, it's just a different context for me. It's only three verses, but uh, I wonder if you could comment on that. Maybe just also comment on the use of the Psalms in general for the Christian in their, in their, their walk with Christ. But that... What's mentioned in Psalm 131 is weaning, like a weaned child. Uh, and I'll sort of read it and then get off the air and maybe have you comment on it. But uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read it. It's only three verses to get the okay. context of it. I'd love to. Sure, this is New America Standard Version, by the way. Says, oh, Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. Um, so the only in reference I know about weaning is what, well, we talk about Isaac. Whenever Isaac was weaned, they had a celebration. I think it was, was uh, Ismael made fun of him. Uh, but mm-hmm. that, that's the only reference I remember. But I don't, I don't, I don't really know in that context what wean, weaning had to do with what David was talking about. Would that be something you could comment on, please? Yeah, Jim, I can. And I think a better reference for weaning than Isaac um, would be um, Samuel and and Hannah's promise. Um, Lord, if you give me this child, you grant my my prayer, then I'll I'll dedicate this child to you. This child will be yours uh, for his entire life. And, of course, God granted Hannah the, the answer to the prayer, and Samuel was born. And then she took... Samuel home until he was weaned. Now that would probably be a couple of years in the in the ancient world, maybe even more than that. And and then she had to keep her promise. And that's exactly what she did. So she got that. She understood it. And and that's probably closer to what is in view here. Um what the psalmist is saying this is the psalm of David, a psalm of ascent. Um, David is checking his heart. My heart's right with you, Lord. Uh, I'm not consumed with myself. Uh, I'm not trying to change the world or try to understand things beyond my ability to understand. But I've still inquieted my soul. And David, as a leader of Israel, is serving as an example. And um, the, the, the wean child reference... Um, you know, there's still that love and affection for your, for, for your mother. Um, and David is saying, look, my soul within me, I'm content where I am. And then the exhortation in verse 3 is, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. So this is a short psalm, but, but it is a, a wonderful psalm. Now, a psalm of ascent can be two things. It can be uh, going into a battle. Or it can be going into or up to Jerusalem, and um, um, you know to 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 connect with the Lord. And um, what He's telling Israel to do as their King is put your hope in the Lord, both now and forever. I really find it interesting because most Jews had no concept of forever. Eternity was a mystery to them, and and um, and yet David, a man after God's own heart, understood. So I think I think Samuel, as I said, is a much better frame of reference than Isaac. Um, do what God tells you to do. Keep your promises. Walk with the Lord. Do it in humility. He said in Psalm fifty-one, a broken and contrite heart. Those are the acceptable sacrifice of the Lord. Thank you, Jim. I appreciate the call very, very much. Here is a question that came in from Gerald. 
How do I balance Christian liberties and laying them down, as Paul says? What a wonderful question this is. Um, you know, he he talks about this very thing with Galatians, also Romans. Um, and, and Paul decides that the greatest use of his Christian liberty is to lay it down. I'm free to do all things, but all things are not beneficial. And Paul, in his particular case, he he would lay his freedom down, his liberty down, but it was always for the benefit of somebody else. He said, to the Jew, I became a Jew, to to um, those not having the law, like one not having the law. So so he was concerned about the people. And, and what he would say, there's a, a situation in the book of Acts where, when he returned to Jerusalem, and everybody was nervous because uh, the the reaction to Paul being there was visceral. The Jews were afraid of him, and they didn't like him because he, they they had heard that he was teaching against the law and against Moses and against their traditions. And so uh, James and the others presented an opportunity to to uh, um, pay for a ceremonial purification ritual. Uh, and go through it themselves. They said, when people see doing that, they'll know that you're not opposing the law. Now, Paul was never opposing the law, and he might have thought initially, well, why would I do that? I'm not under the law. That's legalism. But he did it for others. Now, Gerald, in Romans chapter 9, the first five verses, read that and just marvel at it. Because what Paul is saying there is that if... He could. Now, he knows he can't, but this comes from the heart, as witnessed by the Holy Spirit. He would give his place in heaven if only his brothers, the Jews, would believe. Now, if you've got that attitude, then it's easy to lay down your liberties. Now, let me make it a little bit more contemporary. Um, If you're going out um, to a restaurant and they ask you if you want a drink, there's nothing sinful about having a drink. But maybe you're there with somebody who's a young Christian. And that young Christian might be influenced. Maybe they'll look at you and say, well, well, he's a mature Christian. So if he can drink, I can drink. And maybe he's not equipped to balance um, the alcohol or to deal with it in a balanced way. And so it's, it's better to say, you know what, I'll just have a glass of water or a glass of tea. Thanks very much. And do it for him. Do it just just for the benefit of somebody else, to set an example. And when Paul's speaking to the Romans, the conclusion he comes up to is it's always better to use your liberty for the benefit of somebody else. Thinking about the other person, thinking about the, the effects or thinking about the consequences of your choices, uh, how it would help or how it would hurt. That's the way to do it. So that's how you balance. Now, don't let anybody, Gerald, make you a legalist. The, the idea isn't that, that um, well, because somebody might be offended, I'm, I can't enjoy this liberty. Um, you know, I know people that don't think you should watch movies or, or, or um, just other kinds of entertainment. Um, you know, don't let them put you in bondage. At the same time, be sensitive to where they are in their walk with the Lord. Now, let me make one other thing really, really clear. In the context of this, in Romans, um, the uh, the the conclusion Paul comes to is that the legalist is the weak Christian. The, the man or woman who can balance their freedom, that's the mature Christian. And the mature Christian is always expected to give up something for the weaker brother or sister in the Lord. So that's the answer, Gerald. Thank you very, very much for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Craig says, Pastor, what exactly does Jesus mean when he says we can move mountains into the sea if we believe? You know, Craig, when I was a brand new believer, this really bugged me. Because I had two, I'm a very logical thinker. And so my first thought is, why would anybody want to move a mountain into the sea? That doesn't make any sense to me. But then you understand Jesus' message was completely Jewish and his target audience was Jews. And then you kind of dig in and you understand that in Jewish thought, a mountain wasn't a literal mountain. He was just using the mountain. They would look around the Sea of Galilee surrounded by 
by hills and by mountains. And, and he's simply saying, look, if you have enough faith, you could even move that mountain in the sea. In Jewish thought, a mountain was something that was an insurmountable problem, something that was so big, so impossible. And Jesus, and that comes from Zechariah, I think it's chapter 13. Um, I, I don't know that for sure, but it's, it's a lot of part of Zechariah. Um, a, a mountain is just one of those impossible things. I'll give you an example. When Nehemiah uh, went to uh, Jerusalem and found the condition of the wall, now the wall was the, the source of defense for an ancient city. And when he saw that the situation was much worse than he ever imagined, I mean, he couldn't even take his horse. He had to get off of his horse and, um, and he couldn't move. Um, it seemed impossible. And that's why the Jews had given up on trying to rebuild the wall. It just seemed impossible. It's, it's just such a big job, nobody can do it. Well, Nehemiah comes, accepts the challenge, and the wall was miraculously finished in 50 days. So that's the idea. It's not moving that mountain in the sea. Jesus is simply saying that if you believe, and if you're walking with me, then those impossible problems in your life, the impossible problems in your life, they will just disappear. And Craig, I can tell you without hesitation, I have seen God move really, really impossible problems away in our lives, uh, personally for me and for Paula and also uh, for our church as well. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. Let's go to William on line one from San Antonio. William, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I love you, Pastor Ron. Thank hey, you. Can you can you explain Advent and is it applied to Bible churches and all that kind of stuff? That's my question. Thank you, William. I'm going to disappoint you. I I don't spend even a moment studying religious traditions. Not even a moment. Uh, Advent makes no sense to me. Um, these are religious, extra-biblical religious rituals, um, uh, similar to Ash Wednesday and other things. And so I just, I just don't spend a moment uh, even trying to understand them. So uh, my understanding is 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 very, very basic, and uh, I, I just, I wouldn't want to address it on the air. I wouldn't want to misrepresent their position. But here's what I can say. Um, these are extra biblical traditions, and it's just not something that has any real value, none whatsoever. So, I'm sorry, William, I can't be more help than that. Here is a question. This one is from Caleb. Question: How can we be sure the gap theory isn't true? Well, because the Bible says it's not true. Um, Caleb, in the, you know, when 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 God uses the word for a day, there's no other context. A day is 24 hours in Hebrew literature, in biblical literature. That is a word that describes a 24-hour day. And suddenly, uh, somebody says, well, the gap theory, there was a big gap between verse 1 in Genesis 1 and verse 2. Um, you have to say, well, where is it? Well, it's not there. And then they'll come up with something. Well, the earth was void and and and, and God had to fix it. no. There's no gap theory. Um, the Holy Spirit goes out of his way. As you go through the days of creation, it goes out of his way. It says, on the first day this, on the second day this, on the third day this. And then at the end of all of those individual days, it says it was the evening and the morning of the first day, of the second day. The evening and the morning, 24-hour days. And so the 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 pressure now here's why the gap theory has gained some popularity. Um, you know we've got uh, people bombarding us with the Earth is billions of years old or hundreds of millions of years old, and you know the science is so convincing. Well, science has proved that the Earth is, and and we can't reconcile if we believe science instead of believing the Word of God. We can't reconcile a young earth with the information. But but science has proven. No, it hasn't proven. Now, I always say this, and nobody's ever been able to give me a response that would make me question it. You know, when Adam and Eve were born, or when, when they were created by God, on the first day, 
well, actually, they're created on the sixth day, but 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 the first day when they woke up, you know, they're created. Um, and, and Adam went to sleep, and the next day, um, Eve was was there. They were one day old, but I promise they didn't look one day old. And so, if the Bible said there was a gap, and if there was, it would say that. It doesn't say that at all. And and we've got to decide, are we going to believe what science tells us? Uh, science that is proven wrong over and over and over again. Science that begins with the premise that there is no God. Or are we going to take it on face value for what it says? The morning, or I'm sorry, the evening in the morning of the first day. The evening in the morning of the second day. And that's what the, the creation story is all about, Caleb. So this is a matter of faith. God created all things. He holds all things together. And we've got to believe that. So that's how we can be sure. It's a matter of you've got to decide whether or not you can um, trust the Bible. And that's an individual decision that you've got to make. And believe me, it is worth the research. It's worth the time. Um, I've told the story many, many times. I'll be very brief uh, this time. But for me, as a brand new believer, I had tons and tons of questions. And everybody would say, well, the Bible says. When I ask Christians, what about this? What about, well, the Bible says. And it didn't make any sense to me. I'd never opened a Bible before I got saved. And it didn't make any sense. How could this be the Word of God and still be written by men? And as an unbeliever, before I got saved, oh, it's just an ancient book written by men and doesn't really have any value. Well, when I got saved, I had to find out what was true. And it took me almost three months, and I had that come-to-Jesus moment where I had to choose. He proved to me that it was his word, and I had to choose, am I going to believe it? And um, I'll tell you, when I got through that, mini crisis um, my life changed forever I've never once doubted my salvation since then I've never once um, doubted that the Bible was the word of God um, I haven't had to spend time looking at other religious alternatives or sources so um, what you got to do is you got to decide who you're going to believe Here's a question from Lance. Lance says, where was Daniel when his friends were thrown in the, into the furnace? Great question, Lance. And the, the answer to that question is um, he was purposely omitted from the story. He wasn't there. Now, if he was there, he was purposely, by God's design, omitted. And, and he was painting a picture. And that's the reason. Daniel the Beloved, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the faithful. Well, God was creating a picture for us by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the furnace. It was a picture of Jews who will go through the Great Tribulation. That's another fire awaiting in Israel's future. It's the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist is, is, has vowed to kill every Jew. Daniel the Beloved, now that's important because Daniel the Beloved, he's the one who gets all of the end times um, visions and 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 uh, messages from heaven um, in the Old Testament, the, sort of the counterpart to John the Beloved in the New Testament, um, and they're the ones who got the he's John got the revelation. So the the end times prophecies are given to those two characters. Daniel being absent from that fire is a picture of the church being taken away to be with the Lord during the Great Tribulation, the seven-year period of time that we, we understand is, is the worst time in, in, in the history of the world in terms of, of um, difficulties. So Daniel is absent by design. Uh, his friends are there by design. And God has a message in that for all of us. Great question, Lance. Thank you very, very much. I'm sorry, it's not Lance, it's Lane. You guys, please understand, I'm visually impaired, so I see things that aren't there and sometimes don't see things that are there. So thank you very, very much. Let me see if I can get one more question in for the program. Um, 
Bob says, what do you think about churches who put pastors on a pedestal? Do you allow people to do that to you? Uh, I'm not on a pedestal. I'm kind of short, so I may have to stand on a box sometimes. But but no, the pastor is just a tool. That's all. And I think we live in a celebrity culture. Um, People love to know that their pastor's famous, and he's cool, and he's that. So, Bob, in our church, we don't have anybody cool here. It's that simple. Jesus is the only cool one here at Calvary Chapel. And uh, we keep him on a pedestal. And, and we who are servants, we really and truly do know who we are. And apart from Christ, we're not much at all. So those churches that are um, reveling in the celebrity of their pastor, um, they're the ones who are missing out. They're the ones who are missing out. So, Bob, it just is something obviously that shouldn't be done. I always giggle a little bit when somebody asks, do I, do, do, do people put me on a pestle or those kind of questions? How do I stay humble? Those kind of things. Believe me, God is really, really good at keeping me humble. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.